Welcome, folks. This is Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. We had a lot of interesting guests on Studio Two in 2023. Cherry, I'm looking back at some mm-hmm. topics that made us laugh, others that got us thinking. Yeah. And this next one was definitely thought provoking. We spoke about the book American Gun. The true story of the AR-15. And there are over 20 million of them across the country. Many are owned legally, used for hunting and sport, or frankly, because gun owners have the right to possess these weapons. They've also, though, Avi, played a role in high-profile mass shootings, used in half of the 10 deadliest shootings in modern U.S. history. This rifle, at the center of our gun safety debate, has unusual origins, birthed by a self-trained inventor in Southern California who lacked formal education but had a knack for engineering. We had the authors, Zusha Ellenson and Cameron McWhorter, in the studio to talk about their book. It's a triumph of a work. I mean, it's quite detailed. There's a ton of reporting that went into it. And you start with this reporting about the inventor, Eugene Stoner, often just called Stoner. Mm-hmm. Interesting guy, and usually origin stories for weapons, it's like a big team of people, and yeah, maybe there's one person that gets a lot of the credit. This story really seems like it's about one guy, one eccentric but brilliant man. Maybe I'll start with you, Zusha. Tell us about Eugene Stoner. Eugene Stoner is a fascinating character. He lived in Los Angeles. He worked in a machine shop making aircraft parts, but at night, every night, he would come home and go into his garage and tinker around with gun designs. Everywhere he was, in fact, he would be sketching out gun designs. They'd be at the restaurant, and he'd be writing little designs on the white tablecloths, and his wife would say, "Um, don't do that. Don't do that here. And he'd say, they'll wash it out. It's okay. He was a very gentle guy. He never swore or spanked his children. When he was really upset, he would say, boy, that frosts me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing is, he was a genius. I mean, he was a total genius, and he came up with a gun that someone who was trained in the dogmas of gun design, who had probably gone to engineering school, wouldn't have been able to think of. And, and that's, it's a story that really hasn't been told until now. And, and you, it says in the book, you lay out that this obsession, uh, Cam, of his was truly lifelong. I mean, from the moment when he's a child, he is experimenting mm-hmm. with blowing, blowing things, things up. up. Yeah, he's I mean, blowing things up all I mean, the time. I mean, talk, yeah. ab- talk about that because that really does paint this pretty compelling picture of a guy who's really driven, it seemingly, by nothing more than his own interest. Yeah, I mean, this is, in, in so many ways, the story begins as a classic American story. This guy is the inventor we all think of as, gosh, that's, you know, that's what America's all about. You know, the guy working in his garage to, who, you know, didn't get the formal education, didn't, you know, didn't, uh, didn't, you know, get all the, didn't get a silver spoon in his mouth when he was born, you know, and he makes this device and then eagerly tries to fix it and fix it and fix it and prove it and prove it and prove it. It's, it really, Researching this book, I don't have an engineer's mind. I don't know if you guys do. Not I not definitely don't. That's why I'm a journalist. <laughs> and to me, I really began to appreciate, I really did, became to appreciate that. This is a guy who looked at any object and thought, how can I make it better? And he became obsessed with, as we, as you pointed out, blowing things up. And he really looked at rifles and started to say, how can I make 
this a better rifle for, for American soldiers. And if you are just tuning in, we're talking about the brand new book called American Gun, the true story of the AR-15 with our authors, national reporters for the Wall Street Journal, Cameron McWhorter and Zusha Ellenson. Call us, participate in this conversation. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio two at whyy.org. So I want to put Stoner in the context of when he lived. Where was America (laughs) at the time when it comes to weaponry used for war and such that we needed a person like Stoner to create um, what we're now talking about, this AR-15. Talk about the time and his 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 mind at the time. Go right well, ahead. the Cold War was was flashing hot. You know, this is right after World War II. He is starting, he's working in aircraft uh, factories using materials that hadn't been used before, like aluminum, mm-hmm. pla- hard plastics that could be used. And he's saying, why aren't, why aren't we using these for guns? And there was a real concern on the part of the U.S. military as Cold War, you know, these battles started to erupt across the world with communist insurgents using the AK-47, which you may have heard of, yeah. a, he- a, a heavier gun, but certainly a re- reliable, sturdy weapon that insurgents were using everywhere. And American, some American military people started to really be concerned that we needed to get a weapon that could match that and could fire a lot of rounds Take a lot of you know take take this gun, which was lighter, easier to shoot. I don't know if either of you have ever shot an AR-15 or other guns, but uh, heavier guns, you know, the traditional hunting rifle, you'll feel it in your shoulder. Mm-hmm. An AR-15 is a breeze to shoot, mm-hmm. and, and that gave soldiers the ability to carry more ammunition to the field. Uh, whoever shoots the most lead in a battle usually wins. And this was the basic principles that that drove Stoner to create what he did. Yeah, the, the, the AK-47 looms over all of this. It's not just as a weapon, which in some ways it did seem better than what, what America and its allies were using at a time, but, but as a symbol as well of, of revolution around the world. And it seems on some level like the, the military is looking for its Cold War rifle, its symbol of what it's trying to accomplish. And there was this great struggle going on within the military because here comes this startup company, you know, the Armalite, uh, this small company in Southern California that created the AR-15 was competing with with the military, which had Mm -hmm. produced a heavier weapon that they thought was great. But a lot of people within the military, high-ranking people in the military thought, this isn't going to cut it. Yep. And the AR-15 really has to fight its way in to eventually become adopted. And Zusha, can you talk about how the AR-15 worked its way in? Because we're talking about bureaucracy. We're talking about um, a small little startup company, unknown inventor without all the credentials, having to push his way in to to the Pentagon, basically. Yeah, so Stoner is this kind of mad genius, right? He comes up with all these ideas. But he's really guileless, and he expects that if he makes the best gun, the military will choose it. But in fact, that's not how it goes at all. There's all these huge egos. There's politics involved. And as soon as a certain faction of the old-school military sees this rifle coming up, they're like, we have to crush that no matter what. And they rig tests. They shade results. 
they do all these very underhanded things that that Stoner had never imagined. I mean, there's this one crazy story where he flies up to Alaska. They're shooting his gun in the middle of the winter there with all the snow. The guys have mittens on. And he, they're all missing the target, and Stoner's alarmed. He's like, why are you guys missing the targets? He says, ceasefire, ceasefire. And he looks at the guns, and he realized that the sights that you use to aim have been badly misaligned with little bits of metal, and he suspects that they were sabotaged. Mm. So it was a very difficult road to get the military to adopt the rifle. We've all established that we don't have engineering minds here, but <laughs> True. to the extent that you can— can you try to explain what made this weapon, I'll start with you, Zusha, uh, so revolutionary? I want to read a quote here from the book. The AR-15 shed traditions that had long burdened gun design, such as the reliance on heavy wood and steel, and the bias toward large caliber bullets for an infantry rifle. Though they didn't know it, the men at Armalite, which is Stoner's company, were about to blow away these weighted legacies with a puff of light gas and a few pieces of plastic and aluminum. From an engineering perspective, what made this weapon so good? So the first thing is what it was made out of. As you just read there, rifles had for centuries been made out of wood, mainly black walnut wood and heavy steel. And that's very heavy, obviously. I mean, it was reliable, but extremely heavy. Stoner was not confined by the past. He always was looking for something new. And he said, why don't I use aluminum, right? Airplanes are made out of aluminum. So he started making some of the heaviest parts out of aluminum. Other parts they made out of plastic and fiberglass. So that's to start with different materials. The second thing he did was redesign the interior of the gun, how it functioned. And what he did was he devised a really clever way to use the gas from mm -hmm. the exploding gunpowder to power parts in the gun. And he eliminated a number of heavy metal parts in doing so, making the rifle even lighter. Mm. It's, not a, it's, not, uh, it's, it's akin to electric vehicles, right? They're, they have a lot less parts. Mm -hmm. And this is a gun that has less parts than the traditional rifles that the Army had been using. Yeah. Can we talk about the bullet? because And the way the bullet is propelled out of the... The gun, because it's one of the reasons why it was so effective in war. Could you talk about that, Cam? Sure. Zusha, well, yeah. yeah. No, you take Zusha, it. Zusha, you go ahead. All right. <laughs> yeah. So the, the, there's a, a great misconception about the bullets that are fired out of the AR-15. Mm -hmm. A lot of people say this is a high-powered rifle. They always say that's not true. So this is a very tiny bullet. It's almost the size of a 22, which is like you know what kids are shooting squirrels mm -hmm. with. Um, but it's fired out of the AR-15 at a really, really high speed to maximize its injury potential, as they call it. And what happens is the bullet flies through the air, nose first, but when it hits the human body, it goes unstable very quickly. And because it goes unstable, it starts spiraling like a top, and it does a lot more damage than you would think such a small bullet could do. Yeah, there's a quote here in the book, larger bullets... Mm -hmm. tended to punch straight through a human body, but the small bullet would go unstable faster and therefore create a larger wound cavity than you would normally expect. Eugene Stoner said that. And so that's perfect if you're in combat. Yep. It also is horrible if it's shot, if you're shooting. I mean, we'll get into this later, yep. but I mean, it's horrible. The same design principles that made it an excellent weapon for combat wreak havoc later. It and, and I want to talk about that from the very beginning of the invention, the gun was extremely destructive and deadly to the human body. I think a, a Pentagon official called it, quote, a killing. The, it said it's killing power. It's terrific. Um, can you talk about how they sort of figured this out? They, they learned it very early 
running tests, and they could see very quickly what it could do to a human body. Yeah. Well, there's a whole there's a whole story where uh, the gun is taken to Viet to Vietnam, at, at South Vietnam, and it's given to Army Rangers there, South Vietnamese Army Rangers, and they use it in combat, and they send back these reports. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Reports which end up at the Pentagon just showing devastating impact of the gun and that it really had this incredible ability in, in fighting against the Viet Cong and, uh, and so they start so then the army really embraces it and they start to really really start to say this is a weapon we should be using as the war in Vietnam ramps up. We have to take a quick break and then we'll continue our conversation with authors Zusha Ellenson and Cameron McWhirter right after this. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi wolfman Aaron. Now we're going to continue our chat with Zusha Ellenson and Cameron McWhorter, co-authors of American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15. And I want to pick back up where we left off yep. before the break, talking about the moment that the military, that all the inventors realized the killing power of the AR-15. You were talking about uh, war, it being tested in war. Could you pick up on that story? Cameron? Yeah, so the, and there's all this bureaucratic infighting that we were talking about. Yeah. So eventually the military adopts the M16 as a as a weapon to start using in Vietnam. Just to be clear, the M16, the AR15, yeah, right? I mean, they're, they're, yeah, cousin, I gonna, they're cousin weapons, right? Well, um you could go farther than that that I'll I'll bore you with a little technical stuff. Sure. So so the military version of the of the AR15 is reclassified the M16. It's a gun that can fire semi-automatic, mm-hmm. which is means that you have to pull the trigger every time the bullet fires. And then automatic, you just hold the trigger down and, and the entire magazine will fire, will, will cycle out. So they, uh, soldiers are issued the, 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 uh, the gun that can do both of those things, mm-hmm. right? So they uh, start to use it in Vietnam and there's some early battles that show great success. So they go to Colt, which is the manufacturer of the gun and they ramp up production dramatically as American soldiers and Marines are being sent in large numbers to Vietnam. They made a technical committee in in the Pentagon made some technical changes to the gun, particularly regarding the ammunition propellant. And they didn't really properly test it because Mm -hmm. the war was on, you know, we're in a war and they weren't soldiers and Marines weren't given the proper cleaning equipment. They weren't properly trained to how much you had to clean this weapon. And they, uh, the gun starts jamming in combat, mm-hmm. and we have some horrifying stories of soldiers dying, yeah, and Marines waking up in if being attacked, and their gun jams over and over again. Uh, I actually we have a, a someone in the book who who literally could only the the way he used his M16 to kill an enemy was by punching it through the person's skull because mm-hmm. the the gun mm-hmm. wouldn't shoot. I mean, it's pretty horrifying. It starts off as this triumph of yes. the outsider over the bureaucracy, but these bureaucratic sort of ch- changes along the way for the purpose of expediency during a war end up in some ways undermining the weapon. Right. And, and the military tries to, and we found this in records that we were looking into, tries to keep this bad news suppressed yep. 
but family, you know, their soldiers and Marines are writing home to their families saying, my God, my gun isn't working. Yeah. And if you are just tuning in, we're speaking with the authors of American Gun, the true story of the AR-15. The authors are Cameron McWhorter and Zusha Ellenson. And we have a caller um, who has a lot of experience with AR-15s who wants to um, who wants to speak with us. Rick, you are on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Well, my comment is I lived in Central America in high security for a long time. And you know, the name assault rifle was coined by one Adolf Hitler because they had an MP44 in 1944, the first assault rifle. But the AR-15, why does the Army like it for our soldiers? Because you can carry, a soldier can carry 200 rounds of that mm. easy, and the rifle is light, and it's very efficient. I will say, I will correct you on one thing. Our military M16s are now on, on full automatic. They fire only three shots. They do yeah. not go to full automatic. And that, they do get to that, actually, in the book, Rick, yeah. and I should, you, that's, a, that's yeah. a correct point. Mm-hmm. There have been modifications. Yeah, there have been modifications yeah. over time. The three-round yeah. burst. Uh, is a, is something that was added to some of those guns late in later versions. To point out, uh, importantly, uh, Eugene Stoner hated the three-round burst. <laughs> yeah. He hated it. Yeah, and in fact, I believe his funeral, right, told them yeah. that they had to get rid of the three-round? Yeah. yeah, he hated That's a whole other story, but uh, thank you so much for the comment, Rick. And Rick uh, is right. Yeah. You know, the we could have a whole discussion about the term assault rifle, but yeah, the Nazis... Uh, created a weapon that translates as sort of storm rifle, and that was translated by American forces as assault rifle. Now, there's, here's a question here from Alex um, that you do address in the book. Mm-hmm. Alex, a lot of people think the AR and AR-15 does stand for assault rifle. It does, it does not. not yeah. um, Alex wants to know what the AR and AR-15 stands for, and I think it's an interesting question. I'll, I'll pose it to you, Zusha, because Almost everyone is wrong about what AR actually stands mm-hmm. for, and it shows how this debate around the gun has become so unmoored from its own history. So maybe we'll use this as a transition point. Zusha, what does AR actually stand for? I could not have said it better, Avi. I mean, <laughs> as we looked into the story, we just found so many things that we never knew and that people have been arguing about for decades, and one is what does AR stand for? So um, gun control activists will often say it stands for assault rifle. It does not. But on the other side, when um, gun rights activists argue against them, they say it stands for Armalite Rifle. That is also not true. It stands for either Armalite, just the name of the company, and then 15 is the 15th creation of the company, or as Stoner's daughter says, it stands for Armalite Research. There's two different accounts. It's amazing that there isn't even really one answer to that question. It just shows you so much about this gun. Yeah, Yeah. and I want to jump down to sort of the uh, introduction of the AR-15 to civilians and um, sort of the – and then we'll get to the politics of that because one of the things that fascinated me about when I read this book is that true gun enthusiasts hated the AR-15. They gave it the finger and they looked down on it and um, when it became available to civilians – and then all of a sudden, now it's popular. What was the original feeling of gun enthusiasts when it comes to that rifle, and how did it change? What changed it? Well, at first, you know, Colt was making this weapon for the military, so they got these great, huge military contracts. But then they would have some downtime at their factory, and they would make they made a civilian version, which only had five rounds, and they marketed it to hunters who would go off into the wilderness or people who wanted to shoot varmints. It was 
it was a weird gun for the traditional gun owner to see mm-hmm. because it, because as we've described it's it doesn't look like your normal rifle it's made out of plastic and aluminum hunters in america were were used to traditional big heavy guns where they fire one shot and they bring down a deer you wouldn't want to shoot a deer with a uh, this the two two three round of an AR fifteen it just wouldn't be, make sense, and so um, it really becomes this gun that that uh, that yeah people like you said people really hated it. On top of that, all these soldiers who had gone to and Marines who had gone to Vietnam come back, they hate that gun because yeah. Of, yeah. of the problems that it had. Yeah. So they know they don't want to see it either. So uh, it, when in gun shows when when people start to when smaller manufacturers start to make the gun mm-hmm. and produce it and go to gun shows, pe- like you said, people are giving them the finger, yelling at them. And, and one of the things that was interesting to me was that um, as it transitioned, um, you had Black Panthers using it. You had white nationalists using it. You had like fringy folks and edgy people using this rifle. Um, when did it sort of switch over to become something more popular? So the seeds, yeah, the seeds yeah. of that are really in the 1994 federal assault weapons ban. So at that time, you know, crime was high in the U.S. People are concerned about gun violence, and Congress passed a number of gun control measures, including this assault weapons ban. And they included the AR-15 almost as an afterthought. They were more focused on AK-47s, MAC-10s, all these guns we know from movies from that time. And, but what happened when they included the AR-15 is that people who owned this gun, they had, they had owned it because they're collectors, because they like to shoot it. All of a sudden, it became a political symbol. They were yeah. like, you can't take my gun. You know, Bill Clinton, why are you telling me what kind of gun I can't, can and can't have? And so that was the first thing that turned it, in, turned it much more popular than it ever had been. In fact, there were more AR-15s made during the 10-year federal assault weapons ban than there were in the 30 years before that, which is amazing. I want to read a fascinating quote in the book from Barry Goldwater, no less an arch conservative than Barry Goldwater, who says of the AR-15, this is many years before that, there's no need for it. They have no place in anybody's arsenal. Mm-hmm. If any SOB can't hit a deer with one shot, then he ought to quit shooting. It starts off as a symbol of almost anti-masculinity mm-hmm. and is transformed through marketing and political coincidence, it seems, to the ultimate symbol of masculinity. Can you elaborate a little more on that, Cam? Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that is a huge arc mm-hmm. in the book, of course, is that this gun slowly becomes this symbol of Second Amendment rights and machismo when, in fact, it's a gun that's really easy to shoot and really light and mm-hmm. shoots a small bullet. But the, that transformation begins, as Usha said, with the assault weapons ban, and it becomes this political f- chew toy that there are everybody's arguing over, and then we have nine eleven, in which suddenly this gun that had been despised by certainly by Vietnam veterans and by traditional hunters suddenly everyone in America is seeing our soldiers going into combat with yep. this rifle mm-hmm. versions of this rifle. They're standing at our airports guarding us uh, with this rifle. They're standing at you know at the, where the towers fell. So it becomes this very patriotic symbol. Uh, the gun companies lean heavily into that. When in 2004, after the 10-year, uh, if the gun is the gun ban is the assault weapons ban is sunsetted, 
sales take off. Yeah. And the gun companies are, are right there ready to, um, to make a lot of money off of it. it. Because in part, as we said from the very beginning, it's easy to put together, it's light, the parts are pretty easy to put together, it's cheap. The it's margins are huge. And the margins are huge. Yeah. I want to talk about the assault weapons ban that passed. It had a sunset clause, uh, only worked for 10 years. Why, talk about why it was so ineffective um, and then compare that to what they did in Australia, and it worked over there. And Zusha. Right. So let's start with Australia. They banned a whole class of semi-automatic rifles. That's any kind of rifle you can shoot one bullet with one trigger pull. And they just said, we're getting rid of these types of guns. And there's some exceptions, but mainly they got rid of all of them. In the U.S., there's much stronger gun rights groups. There's the Second Amendment. And so the senators who wrote this bill felt at the time they couldn't do something so dramatic. And so they sort of nibbled around the edges and they tried to define this sort of nebulous assault we- weapon by the way they looked, less by their function. Mm. And so the gun makers easily got around this um, assault weapons ban. You know, the next day they were figuring out how to take off this piece, how to take off this piece and still produce AR-15s. The one big difference is you couldn't sell magazines with more than 10 rounds at the time. But there were tons of large magazines floating around the country. It was not hard to get one. Um, Certainly, scholars have debated whether it was effective or not. Uh, You know, a lot of the research shows that it didn't do much in the way of curbing gun violence or mass shootings. Or certainly sales of the AR-15. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that there's there's no debating that part. Yeah. Yeah. Email from Anya. Uh, I want to bring this in. Why are you elevating a book that glorifies guns? I am listening to you mm-hmm. say that the rifle was so great because it was great in combat. You do realize that in combat also means destroying human lives in horrific ways, right? Um, that's an email from Anya. And I will say before I ask my question, on top of that, I wouldn't say this, is, this glorifies, glorifies the gun no. uh, because, and we only have a few minutes left, there are excruciating details about mm-hmm. several mass shootings, people who died, and the people who survived with horrible injuries. And I want to give you a chance, um, uh, to Zusha, to, to tell at least one of those stories, um, because they all start on such normal days, yeah. and they end yeah. so horrifically. Sure. I mean, one of the big reasons we wrote this book is because Cam and I are national reporters. We cover mass shootings all the time. And we really felt that no one was paying attention to the people who survived these atrocities. I mean, after the news vans leave, they're left to sort of struggle with their physical and spiritual wounds that really take a long time to heal. One woman that I got to know well was Valerie Callis Weber, and she survived the San Bernardino shooting. She was at an office, you know, holiday party. How how mundane, right? And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, two shooters break in, and she gets shot once in the uh, in the shoulder and once in the pelvis. And we detail her story, which is just, um, yeah, it's very grim, but also inspiring. She undergoes 60 surgeries. Mm. She undergoes thousands of hours of physical therapy just to get her hand to work again, just so she can walk again. Um, And I remember the thing she said to me, you know, she was really struggling. And she said, I just have to take this on as a full-time job. And so her full-time job for years has been recovery from the wounds caused by the AR-15. Yeah, and I want to mention this comment from Tim who says, but isn't this always the story with a powerful invention? Think atomic bomb, wartime capabilities beyond imagination, now utter destruction. I I think that's a great point. 
and we start with an epigraph from Oppenheimer. And the reason we did that was because th- that's exactly what this is. This is a story of an of a invention for a purpose, yep. a specific purpose, and, it, and it, as soon as the inventor creates it, he, he loses control of it. And it becomes the story of how invention gets away from the inventor and how society ultimately has to come to grips with the impact of that invention. That was our conversation with Zusha Ellenson and Cameron McWhirter about their new book, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15. Coming up next, you'll know this voice from NPR's Morning Edition. We spoke with Steve Inskeep. Welcome back, folks, to Studio Two. Hello, I'm Avi wolfman Arendt. And I am Cherry Gregg. You're likely very familiar with the voice of our next guest, Steve Inskeep. He's the co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. Recently, you may have heard his reporting from Israel, but he's also an author of several books on 19th century American history. His newest one takes on one of America's most storied and mythologized leaders, President Abraham Lincoln. It's not easy to pen a book about Lincoln. There are apparently, I did not know this, Mm -hmm. 15,000 published Mm -hmm. so far about the 16th president. But this new biography titled Differ We Must focuses on Lincoln's political acumen and how he sharpened it through interactions and debates with some of his toughest critics. Like today, the 1850s and 60s were an incredibly divisive time in politics. Seven states had already seceded when Lincoln entered office. So there's lots to talk about here. And Steve is joining us now on the line to talk about President Lincoln, the politician. Steve Inskeep, welcome to Studio Two. Hey, thanks to be here. But you guys are, are th- thanks for the invitation is what I mean to say. But you guys are doing great. You just keep going. Keep talking about the book. You're doing great. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll take it from here. Steve, uh, n- thanks for joining us and we'll see you next Bye. time. <laughs> I'm go get a nap. <laughs> we just laid it all out. So mm-hmm. many people have written about Abraham Lincoln. Before we dig into the substance of your book, what fascinated you about Lincoln such that you desired, not just desire, but also felt that you could actually add a different perspective to the historical record? Oh, that took a while. I mean, I've been interested in Lincoln since I grew up in Indiana, which is a place that he spent most of his youth. I mean, you get a lot of Lincoln propaganda when you grow up in (laughs) in Indiana. And really anywhere in America. I mean, he's such a revered figure. When you become a writer, then that becomes daunting for Mm. the very reason that you suggest like what could I possibly add to what so many what to what Eric Foner has written about Abraham Lincoln or David Herbert Donald or Doris Kearns Goodwin I could go on and on what could I possibly add to this Um, but I had written two other books about 19th century history which began to make me feel that I had this body of knowledge that I might have a different perspective on things and then I began digging into these individual meetings these 16 meetings with with uh, people who differed with him in different ways, different races, different genders, or above all, different opinions and different backgrounds. And I discovered people I'd never heard of, meetings that I had never uh, heard of, or in some cases, famous meetings that I'd read a paragraph about, but I didn't really know the full story. So I kept discovering new things that were new to me, at least. We're going to get into some of those 16 interactions, which is the framework of the book, a little later. But you mentioned there, Steve... Lincoln propaganda. And I Mm -hmm. do think we want in some Mm -hmm. ways to view him as a saintly figure, a moral crusader, and not as a politician. Where do you think that impulse comes from? 
Oh, well, I mean, it, it comes partly from the, the story that he was part of and the national story that he was part of. Uh, I mean, Lincoln grew up in a time when, when many more people were much more overtly Christian than now, when there's a much greater diversity of religion, although Christianity, of course, is still the, the dominant religion in this country. And there are parts of Lincoln's story that, that are almost Christ-like, this man who suffered and died that his nation might live, mm -hmm. that he was assassinated just at the moment of the victory of the Civil War, that he was present for the creation in many ways of the country as we know it, that he took a role in reshaping the Constitution itself to create a multiracial democracy and, and played a big role in expanding the federal government. We could go on and on. He's just part of the American story again and again. And so we naturally want him to be a perfect figure, a saintly figure, a great figure. Um, and, and many people lean into that. It almost seems rude to mm. criticize the guy after he's been assassinated. Although I should say, there is today a different pattern of Lincoln thought. Mm -hmm. I, I think that, 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 that you, you, depending on where you go to school, where you get your information, you may learn that Lincoln was a bad guy, that Lincoln was a racist, that mm -hmm. Lincoln said unpleasant things. And a lot of that stuff is true. He said a lot of things that just by definition were, were racist. But he was on his way to this political goal, and that's what I tried to figure out. So one of the things that I thought was very interesting about your book, Steve, is that you write that Lincoln was a pretty skeptical about people and he saw them as selfish and usually taking action in self-interest. I want you to sort of like explain how he grew up and the the situation that he grew up in that that created this kind of point of view and prepared him to be this skillful politician that did all the things you just talked about. Yeah, I mean, he, he grew up, uh, he was born in Kentucky. Uh, and then moved when he was very young with his family to southern Indiana, which it's the early 1800s. This was the frontier. And when he was seven years old, his father handed him an axe and said, now you get to help me clear the trees off of this land that we have just claimed. And it was, by our standards, by our perception, a, a cruel and rough existence. It was a land that had just been, the, the Indians after which Indiana is named, after whom Indiana is named, had just been driven away recently. Mm -hmm. And there were white settlers coming in and creating what was to them a new world. Uh, and it was backbreaking labor. Lincoln then spent the next 15, 16 years with an axe in his hand doing different kinds of manual labor. He was very young when his mother died. Uh, his mother then was replaced by a stepmother who brought along a bunch of siblings that he had to get used to. It was, by our standards, a very difficult life that he himself summarized as the short and simple annals of the poor. He had to educate himself. He had to pull himself up in the world. But during all of that time, he was observing other people. Mm. And just as you said, he did conclude that people acted out of self-interest, that even if they said they were acting out of patriotism or love or altruism, that there was something in it for them. And in a way, that's not a bad insight. I mean, we, we do act in our own interests, and we have to. If you don't look after yourself, who's going to? So he knew he had to deal with people as they were, that if he was going to appeal to them politically, he had to take into account their self-interests. And he tried to align that interest with moral goals, with higher goals, which is how he ended up trying to assemble a coalition or play his role anyway in assembling a great coalition against slavery. As part of that coalition, you write that Republicans, this is the nascent Republican Party, needed people whose views Lincoln considered repug repugnant especially and in including 
nativists. And yeah. you talk about one named Joseph Gillespie, who oddly yeah. enough was the son of Irish immigrants, um, but was himself an ardent nativist. And um, Lincoln tried to court them in Illinois, not all that successfully, but what did that chapter tell you about Lincoln? This is one of the most important chapters to me in the book. I'm glad you brought it up. And one of the most relevant to now, because we, like Lincoln, live in this big, diverse, free country where people have lots of ideas, and lots of the ideas that people have are to us horrifying. Whoever we are, whatever our politics, there are people on the other side, you just can't believe that they believe that. Um, And Lincoln was trying to, in a big, diverse country, assemble a coalition against slavery where people had a wide range of views. I mean, we see it as black and white. Slavery is obviously wrong. And maybe there's a handful of people out there who still think that it's right. I don't know. But in the 1800s, there were lots of people who said, well, slavery is wrong, but here's my rationalization for why I don't need to care about it or I shouldn't do anything about it or why it would actually harm me and my interests to make it go away or it's impossible to deal with. And so Lincoln had to work on people to get them together on this issue he thought was important. And he had to get past their views on other issues that he found horrifying. He felt that the nativists who were rising in popularity at that time were so horrifying that he said, if they ever gained power, I'd rather live somewhere else where they Mm. don't pretend to love liberty. And nevertheless, his friend Joseph Gillespie was someone who commanded voters, who had who had supporters. He was a fellow politician. And that's a reality that we face now, as Lincoln did then, that even when somebody is wrong in a democracy, they still have the vote. And so you have to account for them. You have to deal with them and try to build a majority. Mm-hmm. So Lincoln ended up campaigning with this nativist guy, Gillespie, and appealing for Gillespie's supporters to vote for him, mm-hmm. but tried to keep his integrity by not pandering to their anti-immigrant views. He just talked to them about slavery. Mm. Very interesting. I mean, Lincoln was able to um, get people to vote for him who he totally disagreed with. And he he throughout his political career, specifically as president, was in a very precarious position. On one hand, he wanted to keep the union together. On the other hand, he thought slavery was unjust and wanted it to end. And balancing the two was like walking this tightrope. Um, Steve, can you walk us through critical points in his evolution from being the guy who sort of keeps his feelings quiet about slavery, right, to the man who then issues the Emancipation Proclamation. And there's a couple of critical points, if you could just focus in on those. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm also thinking more broadly. I mean, people talk about Lincoln as this character who grew and changed during his lifetime. I'm not sure that I think of it exactly the same way. I think Mm. that he would say that he responded to circumstances. Um, And that's what I get at or try to get at in these 16 meetings. He's dealing with a person who's difficult and how can he deal with that situation and how can he deal with the next situation? Slavery was such a thing. Before the Civil War, he felt that the Constitution and the laws that supported slavery were so strong there was nothing you could do about it practically. So his goal, as was true of many other anti-slavery people, was restricting slavery, containing it, stopping it from spreading. And even when he was elected president and southern states who were threatened by his election began trying to leave the union, he did not say, well, I'm going to free all your slaves now. He tried to keep the union together and even tried to keep people who supported slavery in the union Mm -hmm. if they would do it. He needed in that way to reach out to people he disagreed with because he needed a majority 
for the Union. Finally, however, he reached a point where he felt strong enough that he could issue the Emancipation Proclamation declaring freedom for the enslaved laborers of rebels who could then be brought north and be converted as they were freed into Union soldiers. And he got to that point by using people who didn't even agree with that goal. I mean, he, mm. he, he managed to... He, Restored to command this general, George McClellan, who didn't agree with him about slavery, but at least agreed about the Union. And he got a victory out of McClellan at Antietam and used the springboard of that victory to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, which is a way that he would use people who disagreed with him to, to achieve a higher goal. McClellan, by the way, from Philadelphia, yes. does come off yeah. as kind of a jerk. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of no, jerky I, I just want to say that's one of the other kinds of kinds of differences here. I mean, yeah. we talk about race, d- d- differences, personality race differences, and, yeah. and, and personality, and also class. He was yeah. an elite guy from an elite family who had an elite education, and Lincoln was none of those things. And I think McClellan uh, looked down on him, and oddly enough, was also a little insecure around him. Yeah. We are speaking with Steve Inskeep, uh, you know the voice, Mm co-host of NPR's Morning Edition. We're talking with him about his new book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. One anecdote from the book, Steve, I wanted to bring up. Uh, This is just after Lincoln has won the presidency and he's having like office hours, basically. Mm -hmm. And this guy from Mississippi comes in who's like clearly supports secession and yeah. Lincoln ends up signing a book for him. <laughs> and it, it was one of those things I realized, oh, Lincoln wasn't just a compromiser in politics. He was like conciliatory in everyday interactions. Do you think that actually mattered at all for his success? Oh, I think it mattered a lot. And it matters a lot to me, strange to say, that Lincoln kept his door open to all kinds of people. Uh, you you give an incident when he was president-elect. He even did this as president. He worried his aides because he allowed so much of his time to be eaten up by common people who came and uh, wanted their husband, women who wanted their husband let out of prison, soldiers who wanted their back pay, random people who were accused of desertion from the army and asked for the help of the president. He would see these people. And I think that that represents what the presidency is supposed to be. Mm. It's not supposed to be a king or an emperor or somebody who's so much greater or better than the rest of us. It's somebody that we have chosen to represent us for a minute or for four years <laughs> and and who is not supposed to be someone we work for because they work for us. Yeah. They serve us. And I do feel that for all of their other flaws, a lot of the earlier presidents had a keener understanding that they were working for the people. One of the interesting meetings, I have to mention Frederick Douglass a little bit because uh, Frederick Douglass went to visit Lincoln in Washington and he had been very critical of um, the president. And uh, but when he left after that meeting, he wrote that uh, the president's approach was, quote, reasonable and called Lincoln wise, great and eloquent and above all honest. That's mm-hmm. that's a true politician when you can get somebody yeah. who mm-hmm. was criticizing you day after day, saying you too slow. I mean, what, what were your thoughts on Lincoln's yeah. ability to sort of not just Frederick Douglass, but other people sort of shift people's mindset when it came to what he was doing yeah. and how well, he was think, making things happen. Let, let's think about what Lincoln was honest about in that meeting. This is such a great meeting with such a great figure. Douglass came to Lincoln in 1863 and basically said, thanks very much for the Emancipation Proclamation. You were super slow getting around to that, but that was a good one. Now you're enlisting Union soldiers in the Army, and I, Frederick Douglass, am serving as a recruiter. I've been getting these guys to sign up. 
I've been promising them equal treatment, equal pay, equal promotions, equal benefits, and you have failed. You've made a liar out of me. You're not giving them equality. They're not getting equal pay, for example. And that's what Lincoln was honest about. He said, I understand that that is wrong. And here is the political reality that forces me to be slow about getting around to that equality. I'm struggling at every step to get these black men recognized as equals. There were white men who didn't even want them in the same uniform Mm. as white men so that there wouldn't be even an implication of equality. Mm. I'm taking this step by step and I'm working on it. And that's what he admitted to Frederick Douglass, that he was honest about with Frederick Douglass. And Lincoln also did the necessary next thing, having admitted that there was something in federal policy that was unjust, he went out and tried to fix it. He argued publicly for equality, and he also ultimately signed into law equal pay for black men. I want to spend this forward to the present, Steve, Mm -hmm. um, because I felt myself doing some maybe media criticism and self-reflection while Hmm. reading this book, because I do feel like political dealmaking is often framed as shady Mm -hmm. or immoral or underhanded. So do you think we need a new paradigm for how we talk about, you know, like the art of politics? And if so, what is that paradigm shift? Oh, I totally agree with you. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, honestly. I mean, it's one of the things that motivated me as I shaped this book. Um, I mean, I want it to be about the past, but you think about the present. It's a conversation between the, the past and the present. And it's exactly right. I mean, think about something that happened recently in the House of Representatives. Kevin McCarthy, the late speaker, former speaker of the House of Representatives, did a deal with Democrats to do business to keep the government open, which is a normal thing that a political leader would do. And a lot of people on his own side found that horrible and unbearable because you're supposed to win 100% for your side all the time. And if you fail to win 100% for your side all the time, uh, that means that you're a loser, you're a rhino, or whatever. Depending, and there, there you can find uh, you, you can find similar things on the Democratic Party. The parties are not the same, but they 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 do have this tendency. Um, and McCarthy lost his job over mm. it. And and the, the idea of democracy, at least as Lincoln tried to practice it, is not that you get perfection, but that you get all you can today. And The nature of democracy is why that would be. We are equal citizens in a republic. It is a free society where we will have many different ideas of what is right and wrong, and we have to negotiate that. Lincoln's conception of the Declaration of Independence, the line that all men are created equal, he knew the Founding Fathers didn't fulfill that. But he said, this is an ideal that is never perfectly attained but can be constantly approximated in ways that add to the happiness and well-being of people of all colors everywhere. His idea was get everything that you can today and then next next year there's going to be another election and let's see what we can get after that election. Let's see what we can get in the future and keep working at it. Democracy is not a perfect yeah. state. Democracy is a process. And Steve, we only have a couple more minutes in this segment, um, mm-hmm. but I, I got to ask you, I mean, this, you know, there were technological advances uh, at the time of Lincoln. The telegraph came around. We're dealing with social media and the 24-hour news cycle. What would 
the type of advice? What would Lincoln say to the politicians of the day if they if he were to try to give advice on dealing with some of our flashpoint topics? Then it was slavery. Now we have a, a laundry list. Oh, my goodness. Well, I think he might start by saying to a lot of people, uh, you don't really need to comment on that. <laughs> you don't need to post that tweet or that X or that whatever it is, that thread. You, you just don't you don't need to speak out on every single issue. Reserve your fire for the things that truly matter. And I think he would probably encourage people to think long term, which is a related thought. He was thinking of the arc of history. He was aware of how hard it was to truly change things and and was mindful that he was picking up a baton from previous generations. And that's that's a great thought. And I think it's one that applies to a lot of big problems we have today. Nobody is going to save solve climate change tomorrow. Just to give one example, nobody is going to uh, figure out artificial intelligence or the U.S. rivalry with China in a minute. So let's think long term and try to have some confidence in yourself and in the people that maybe you don't persuade everyone of your approach. Maybe you don't persuade everyone to be long term, but you don't have to persuade everyone. You need a majority. And I think the question that hangs over the whole book for me is, could a Lincoln-esque figure Mm -hmm. find similar success today? We don't have quite the time to answer that right now, Steve, but um, that is the question for me moving forward and perhaps one our listeners can meditate on as well. Um, Thank you so much, Steve Inskeep, co-host of NPR's Morning Edition and author of Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. That book is out. Thank you so much for the time, Steve. Oh, it was fun. Thank you. And that is it for us today, friends. For more Studio 2, you can follow WHYY on all social platforms and download the show wherever you get your podcasts. And we could not do any of this without our producers, Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Charlie Kyer engineered today's program. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>